0: chapter seven of the heath hover mystery by bertram mitford this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter seven interim flue the carstairs abode was a large dull ugly villa in a large dull ugly suburb one of those depressing suburbs that is neither town nor country but has the disadvantages of both and the advantages of neither. But it was cheerfulness itself compared with the locality through which Melian's cab was now slowly jogging. The squalor of the greasy streets, the dank thick atmosphere, the hoarse scarcely human yells, and the incessant rumble and clatter attendant on that sort of locality are too well known to need any describing leaning back in the mouldy vehicle she set her mind to go over the events of the last few hours she had been ill-advised hasty she asked herself their behaviour at the very last had seemed to show that they were not such ill-meaning people yet as she looked back she knew that relations between them had been getting more and more strained for some reason or other Mrs. Carstairs had been growing more and more short in her manner towards her, and now she knew that reason. The old woman had had her suspicions all along, but the discovery of the climax brought things to a head. But the whole thing was ludicrous, and all about a little booby like that. Melian's lip curled as she thus rather unjustly characterized the distant cause of all the bother the drive was long and the cab slow she had time to let her thoughts go further back from her present troubles the future was not a welcome subject looked at sitting alone there in that mouldy box on wheels and in the dark at that her earlier life had been a sufficiently happy one she had seen a great deal of the world and developed her artistic instincts then had come losses and speculations, instead of mending things, made them worse. Her father was lacking in the business capacity, while her other parent was under the impression that one pound sterling was endowed with the purchasing power of three, and acted consistently upon that conviction. So means dwindled till there was very little left. Things had reached this point when one day her father started off on a railway journey to a place some hours distant. He was mysterious as to the object of it, but declared that they would none of them be the worse if it failed, whereas if it succeeded, they would be considerably the better. He seemed in a hopeful mood and in fairly good spirits, and when, at the big dingy terminus, where she was seeing him off, he handed her a couple of accident insurance tickets, which he had just purchased. He seemed fairly bubbling over with fun. "'See these?' he had said. "'All right. They cost a shilling apiece, and represent a thousand pounds apiece if I'm, uh, totally smashed up. So, you see, I'm more valuable to you dead than alive.' I used to think it was the other way about it, but take care of them. I've signed them and all, so it'd be quite safe. Put them away carefully, two thousand pounds. remember I've a great mind to tear them across and throw them onto the line. The girl had answered, looking at him with filling eyes and quivering lips, but he laughed gaily. Don't do that, little one. "'They cover minor injuries, too, only those mean less dibs. "'You know, so much a leg, so much an arm, so much a finger, and so on. "'It's a rum world, and you never can tell. "'So stick to those tickets till I come back. "'Now, good-bye, my darling little one. "'Here, let go. "'The train's moving by, George.' She was very nearly tightening her hold, so that it would be physically impossible for him to free himself until the train had gone, but she did not. With eyes blinded with tears, she waved to him from the platform as he leaned half out of the window, watching to see the last of her, and he was gone. Yet he would be back the day after tomorrow at the latest. She had often seen him off on such journeys before. "'I am a little fool,' she said to herself as she walked away. About two hours later, when in the middle of its longest non-stop run, Marston Seward fell from the train. There were headlines in the evening paper posters, but somehow or other Melian did not notice these. IT WAS NOT UNTIL THE NEXT DAY, WHEN THEY OPENED THEIR MORNING PAPER, THAT THE TRAGEDY ROSE UP AND HIT THEM BETWEEN THE EYES. NAME, DESCRIPTION, EVERYTHING, FOR BY THIS TIME IDENTIFICATION HAD BEEN EASILY OBTAINED. MELIAN HARDLY KNEW HOW SHE LIVED THROUGH THAT STUNNING BLOW, PERHAPS BECAUSE IT WAS A STUNNING ONE. BUT THE SHOCK WAS TOO MUCH FOR HER MOTHER, THE SHOCK ONLY there was little, if any, affection between her and the dead man. Brain fever supervened, and she died. Her illness made an alarming inroad into the scanty resources remaining to them. Hard material necessities had to be met. Hitherto the girl had shrunk with shuddering horror from turning to account those fatal insurance tickets, the price of her father's blood. She could not claim it. Oh, God, the thought of it! But she might have spared herself any qualms on this head. The railway company flatly and uncompromisingly repudiated all liability. The insurance was against accident, not suicide. They were in a position to prove, and to prove indisputably, that for anyone to have fallen from the particular coach of which seward was an occupant and that by accident was a sheer impossibility the door handles were all in good order if anything rather stiff to turn than otherwise they could prove too that the said door handles were properly secured at the last station the train had passed through and worst of all they were in a position to produce a platform inspector who had passed the pair at the moment of the utterance of those fatal words. You see, I'm more valuable to you dead than alive. I used to think it was the other way around. The official had heard the words distinctly, and after the tragedy had himself voluntarily come forward with the information. At the time they had struck him as utterly jokingly, but in the light of the subsequent event they took on a far different aspect. In short, Seward had bungled the whole business. He died as he had lived, and his last act was one of perfectly inexcusable bungle. "'More valuable to you dead than alive,' had been his words, and in the result his daughter was left alone in the world, as nearly as possible penniless." alone yes for she had no relations except one away in india and for certain reasons the last person on earth to whom she would apply under any circumstances whatever she had no real friends only acquaintances who could be of no great service to her but eventually thanks to the inherent spirit and pluck which buoyed her up she managed to find means of supporting herself and all this had befallen rather more than two years previously to when we first see her being more or less politely shown the door at the Villa Carstairs. Now shut up in the mouldy darkness of the slow jolting vehicle, it all came back to her again, and she had to hurriedly brush away the warm tears which the recollection, always vivid, had evoked as the cab drew up with a jolt at her friend's lodgings. But she met with what she most needed, a cordial welcome. Even the cabman, a rubicund old fellow with a bulbous nose and a rumbling voice, forbore to claim so much as a penny over his legal fare, when he caught a full view of her face under the street lamp, and a gratuity of threepence, smilingly tendered, was met by a hearty thank you kindly missy cummer lodge the carstairs villa though dull and heavy outside within was characterized by a considerable degree of solid comfort but this narrow hallway and the nondescript combination of smells of sink cum cabbage with a slatternly landlady and a still more slatternly servant waiting to give a hand upstairs with the luggage, as well as to satisfy a natural curiosity as to what the visitor would be like, struck her with a very real chill. Would it be her lot to inhabit such a place? was the thought that instinctively shot through her mind. But the impression was partly neutralized when she found herself within her friend's tiny but snug sitting room, with its bright fire and hissing kettle, and tea in its appurtenances, all so dear to the feminine eye. Violet Clinnock was a bright-pleasing type of girl, with dark hair and honest grey eyes. Not exactly pretty, but rather near being so. But with all her natural cheerfulness, there was intertwined an impression of one who was perfectly well able to take care of herself in fact she rather prided herself upon this and upon being an independent bachelor girl who could always make her own way she was a country parson's daughter one of many under which circumstances she flattered herself she had done the right thing in striking out on her own this shop's rather dingy in the daytime dear she explained as the two were seated comfortably in the really cozy little room and the tea and muffins and other things dear to the feminine appetite were in full force but i'm not much here in the daytime and at night once i get inside it doesn't matter the main thing is it's cheap very not nasty either for i do every mortal thing for myself heaven help me if i left it to anybody else well i've been saving up with an eye to running a typing shop on my own it isn't my ambition to remain forever in a position to take orders from other people i can tell you well and why did you leave your last crowd had a row sort of it takes two to make a row and there wasn't much of that on my side answered millian I just let the old woman talk, but she didn't get what she wanted. I got the key of the street instead, so here I am. By the way, she added, waxing grave, I don't know where I'm going to be. That's a pair of shoes of another pattern. Oh, with all your high accomplishments, laughed the other. Why, anyone would jump at you. Would they? They're welcome to skip, then. "'But even high accomplishments are no good without references.' "'Without references? "'But you can get—' "'Oh, I see. "'The old cat won't give you any.' "'Melian nodded. "'The beastly old cat,' pronounced Violet. "'She ought to be compelled to. "'Well, she can't be, and that's all I've got to do with it. "'So there you are.' "'Let's see. You're no good at our job, are you, Melian?' said the other, drumming the tips of her fingers together meditatively. "'Unfortunately, I've never learned it.' "'That's a pity.' In her romantic little soul she was beginning to weave a web of destiny for Melian, and the meshes thereof were glittering. A secretarial post in some flourishing office, and if her beautiful friend did not promptly enslave an opulent junior partner why then it was her own fault but then unfortunately her said beautiful friend had never learned typing they chatted on about everything and nothing and bedtime came i turn in early explained violet because i have to turn out early and get to my job YOU'LL HAVE TO TURN IN WITH ME, DEAR, TONIGHT AT ANY RATE. TOMORROW, IF YOU WANT A ROOM TO YOURSELF, I DARE SAY MRS. SEALS CAN FIX YOU UP. BUT THEY'RE ALL RATHER KENNELS, I'M AFRAID. I'VE GOT THE PICK OF THE BASKET. DON'T YOU WORRY ABOUT ME, VIOLET. IT'S SOMETHING TO HAVE SOMEONE TO COME TO WHEN YOU GET THE KEY OF THE STREET DOOR GIVEN YOU, I CAN TELL YOU," ANSWERED Melian SERIOUSLY and then they went to bed and talked each other to sleep there followed then sad disappointing heart-weary days for poor melian she answered advertisements in person and by letter she went to all sorts of places in and around london in course of such answers sometimes she was sympathetically received twice she was insulted but that was where she found the dominant male had been advertiser under cover of what looked like one of her own sex. But in the genuine cases, disappointment awaited. And but that she was free from vanity or self-consciousness, she might easily have read the real nature of the verdict. Far too pretty. Oh, the weariness of those daily tramps, and bus and tram journeys, through more or less hideous, drab, depressing streets and the dull deadly depressing winter murk invariably characteristic of london during the young end of the year oh the weight of it upon the mind as she realized instinctively that it was not a case of try again but that for some reason or other her case seemed utterly hopeless she put it to her friend but the latter though she shrewdly suspected the reason shrank from saying so of her melian saw little or nothing during the daytime violet clinock was thorough and stuck to her job with an eye to material improvement but in the evening they would foregather and the daily tale of worn-out disappointment would unfold itself and after the wretched soul-wearying effort of the day Mellion could not but realize the warmth and comfort and companionship which it ended up with, and this in a measure heartened her for the next. She had taken a small bedroom at the top of the squalid house, a mere attic, but the two girls chummed together for the rest of their arrangements. But a fortnight went by, then three weeks, and still with the same result. Melian Seward was just where she was at the time of leaving Cumnor Lodge. There seemed to be no room in the world for her. Her slender savings, in spite of every possible economy, were dwindling. When they had done dwindling, what then? And then the result of the cold, dank, and often wet, questings around after a means of livelihood combined with lowness of spirits, and a sorely disturbed mind, came, she was laid low with a bad bout of influenza. The hydra-headed fiend was hard on the ramp, seeking whom he might devour, and finding it too in plenty. And among his countless victims was Melian Mervyn Seward. And she could not afford to be ill, for is not illness a luxury for the rich? But through it all her friend tended her with whole-hearted and loyal camaraderie. Of course she suggested a doctor. "'A doctor? Heavens, Violet, I can't afford such luxuries,' Melian burst forth fiercely. "'The only thing I can afford is to die, and the sooner the better.' And then she became delirious and imagined she was standing on the platform of the gloomy dingy terminus amid its vibration of hissing shrieking engines discussing those hateful fateful railway insurance tickets with her dead father but whether she would have a doctor or not violet was determined she should and sent for one accordingly he on arrival looked grave has she any relations miss clinock oh good heavens you don't say it means that and the business girl was startled for the moment out of her normal take-things-as-they-come attitude no 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 but they ought to know she's in a very low state i'm bound to inform you there's something on her mind something hard and heavy on her mind AND THAT'S ALL AGAINST HER, ALL AGAINST EVERYTHING. LORD, I WISH I KNEW WHAT TO DO. BUT SHE'S VERY CLOSE. BETWEEN OURSELVES, DOCTOR, OF COURSE, STRICTLY BETWEEN OURSELVES. THE OTHER NODDED. I BELIEVE SHE HAS ONE OR TWO, BUT SHE MUST HAVE QUARRELED WITH THEM, OR THEY WITH HER. FOR IF EVER I GOT ON TO THE SUBJECT... She takes me up mighty sharp, I can tell you. And I don't believe in forcing people's confidences or prying into their affairs. No, no, of course not. Still, do all you can in that direction. You may find opportunities, you know, or make them. Good evening. I am very busy just now. There's a record lot of flu about, as I dare say you know. I'll look round in the morning. End of chapter 7